I'd like to share with you this evening, as we begin, some famous last words. So there's Marie Antoinette. She was the wife of King Louis XVI of France, and she was executed in the French Revolution. Pardon me, sir, I did not do it on purpose. Alexander the Great, he said, to the strongest. Todd Beamer, one of the heroes of 9-11. Are you guys ready? Let's roll. Henry Ford, I'll sleep well tonight. John Lennon, I'm shot. I'm shot. Groucho Marx, die, my dear? Well, that's the last thing I'll do. <laughs> Always had a sense of humor, didn't he? <laughs> Famous last words. You know, God's last words are found in the Bible. And it's called the everlasting gospel. God's final last day message to this earth. Before Jesus returns, this goes around the world in great power and glory, and everybody on the planet will hear it. It's a message that comes all the way from heaven, and it's designed by God to reach the hearts of men and women all over the globe. God wants everyone to hear this message. But unfortunately, it's been ignored. Most people, even a lot of Christians, they don't know about God's last words. His final message, we find it in the book of Revelation. And if you have your Bible handy or the one that flips pages or the one on your phone, you can follow along in Revelation chapter 14. Starting with verse 6, the Bible says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. And what is this angel doing? It's preaching to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Revelation 14, 7 continues, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. As we learned in Chris's presentation, we know that God carries out a, an investigation before his judgment, right? And now we're going to learn when that judgment time is in earth's final days. In Revelation 22, we've looked at this passage a few times. It says, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. Jesus is coming back in power and glory. And he's coming back with his reward. Do you want that reward? Uh, absolutely. I think we all want that reward. And he has to determine, though, before he comes, just like we learned, what reward he's bringing. And not just what he's bringing, but for whom. Who will the reward go to? It's Christmas time, and you go to mom's. And you decide what gift you're going to get her before you go there, right? I mean, that's at least the sensible thing to do. 
And if you're really, really careful, you start shopping in January. After everything goes on clearance, right? And by the time you get to October, you're not even going to participate in that mad rush they call Black Friday because you're already done. But if you're a man, <laughs> and I know some men who do this, at 8 p.m. on Christmas Eve, you'll say, what stores are still open? In the book of Daniel, God sets a date for the judgment of the world. Turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14. Daniel 8, 14 says, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now we'll get to the time portion of the prophecy and what date that might be. But what does it mean when it says the sanctuary will be cleansed? In the Bible, we read about two sanctuaries, one on earth and one in heaven. The first sanctuary was mobile. It traveled with God's people in the wilderness wherever they went. Later, it was replaced by a temple. There's a heavenly sanctuary, and it's God's temple in heaven. It's not traveling around. The earthly sanctuary was designed by God to teach his people about his plan of salvation. There were sacrifices, there were feasts, there were priests, there was a high priest who wore beautiful garments. He had 12 precious stones on a breastplate, and they represented the 12 tribes of Israel. All these things were symbolic. They were particularly meaningful. The earthly sanctuary and its services were given by God, and they were given so, God, so the people could learn how God deals with the sin problem and how he saves people for eternity. In Exodus 25, verse 8, we read this. God said this, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. In Isaiah, we, we find a prophecy that says, talks about a virgin, and she's going to give birth. And it gives the name for the child. Do you remember what the name was? Emmanuel. You know what that means? God with us. God has always wanted to be with his people. It's sin that has done the separation. But God has always wanted to be right there by our side. As close to us as he can come. In Exodus 25, 9, same chapter, God says, According to all that I shall show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so shall you make it. God didn't leave it to any human design. He said, I have a way. I have a blueprint. And I want you to do it exactly as I say. It was important. God wanted to dwell in the midst of his people. And the sanctuary was where he could dwell. 
The earthly sanctuary was built according to certain plans that God gave Moses, and they followed him. The sanctuary was very significant in the Jewish way of life. Everything that they did revolved around the sanctuary. It was surrounded by an outer wall, and the sanctuary had two rooms. The first room was called the holy place. The second one was smaller, and it was called the most holy place. And inside the first compartment, if you were to walk in, you would see on the right-hand side was the table of showbread. And this taught us that Jesus is the bread of life. On the left-hand side, you would find the seven-branch candlestick. And we know that Jesus is what? The light of the world. In front, in front of you as you walk in, you would have the altar of incense. And the incense represents our prayers, which go up to God, mixed with the fragrant incense of the righteousness of Christ. Inside the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. In that Ark were three things. But the most significant thing to the Jewish people was God's Ten Commandments, His law. God's people were to obey that law, but they were sinners. So what then? Well, on top of the Ten Commandments, on top of the law, there was a covering on this box, and it was called the mercy seat. Aren't you glad that law and mercy go together? Because if it was just the law, well, you face all the penalty that goes with it. Not that we should be presumptuous. That's not what we're saying here. But if we stumble, if we slip, if we fall, God offers mercy. And we can praise God for that. The priest ministered in the holy place every day. But in the most holy place, the high priest, and only the high priest, went once a year. And he did that on a particular day. It was called the Day of Atonement. And in the Jewish economy, that was called Judgment Day. That was the day that the sanctuary was cleansed. It was a judgment day for the people of God. But on this day, the sins were blotted out. And it only happened once a year. Throughout the year, sinners would take uh, their sacrifices, often a lamb, to the sanctuary. The sinner would confess his uh, sins over the animal, place his hand on the animal. The lamb would be killed, its throat would be cut, and the blood would flow. It would be collected in a bowl. Do you know why? What was God trying to teach us? That sin brings death. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. The wages of sin has always been death from the very beginning. As the sin was confessed over the lamb, it was symbolically transferred from the sinner to the animal. The priest would then take some of that sin-laden blood and sprinkle it inside the sanctuary. In that way, the sin was transferred into the sanctuary. 
There were other ways of doing this, but generally, this is how it was done. And so symbolically, the sin goes from the sinner to the lamb. The sinner's forgiven. And now the lamb had the sin. The lamb died on account of that sin. The blood was taken into the sanctuary on a daily basis throughout the year. The sinners then were no longer under condemnation for that sin. But the sin was on record inside the sanctuary until the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, there was a special service. On this day, the record of sin was blotted out. It was Judgment Day. You see, the truly repentant could have their sins blotted out. This was a day of that they became at one. You think, think of the word of atonement as at one meant. The sinners were at one with God, while those who were not repentant, they weren't one with God. In fact, they were cut off. They were evicted from the congregation. And that's not good if you're wandering through a desert. One Jewish scholar described this judgment day as a crisis of confession and repentance. It was serious. They had to know. They wanted to know. They needed to know. Were they right with God on that day? Go back to Daniel chapter 8, verse 14. Daniel said, 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Every Hebrew knew that Daniel was saying, judgment day, one day, is coming. Let's read from Hebrews chapter 9. If you have your Bible, you can follow along or you can look on the screen. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Starting with verse 6, it says, Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always, or for every day, went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. Verse 7. But under the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, and that was on the Day of Atonement, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. That was the earthly sanctuary service. So what about the heavenly sanctuary? What is Jesus doing right now, right? I mean, some people think that God is just, I mean, he's up there in heaven, I mean, what is he doing? Is he looking around? Is he, is he twiddling his thumbs? Is he bored? What is God doing? The Bible says that Jesus is our heavenly high priest. He ministers on our behalf, but not in an earthly temple. Jesus ministers in the temple in heaven. Let's read Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. It says, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. The words for us are very important. The earthly priest ministered in the earthly sanctuary or the earthly tabernacle, but Jesus ministers in the heavenly tabernacle and he's there for you. He's not there to be against you. That picture that we get from God 
basically hurtling down lightning bolts at men every time they step out of line. That's Greek mythology. That's not the theology of the Bible. In Hebrews 4.14, we read, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confidence. We can have confidence because of our high priest in heaven. And that's good news. Verse 16 of the same chapter says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy to find grace to help in time of need. Why can we come boldly? Is it because of what we have done? Do No. We don't have a right to be to come boldly because of what we've done, but we do have a right to become to come boldly because of Jesus and what he has done. The Bible calls Jesus our advocate. And just as the earthly sanctuary was cleansed, the heavenly sanctuary will likewise be cleansed. You see, the judgment simply reveals what you have done with your opportunity to choose Jesus. The judgment shows if you chose to follow Christ or not. You can think of it like an audit. The books are open. Chris talked about those books. The records of our lives are there. The things that we have said, the things that we have done, the things that we have thought. What will God do? He'll look at these books and he'll say, John Doe calls himself a believer. What does the record say? Because God is fair. He's going to look at the record. He's not going to just, uh, you know, do whatever with him. He's going to look at the record. The record says that he's been forgiven and that he's been cleansed. God can say, yes, John Doe was a believer. This is a saved man. But what about Jane Doe? She claimed to be a believer, but look, her sins, they're not blotted out. She did not lay hold of the grace that Christ offered. See, God is auditing our decisions for or against him. When would this judgment take place? In Revelation, we read, the hour of his judgment is come. But when? When is that hour? Daniel tells us in 8.14, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Let's now turn to Daniel chapter 8, and we'll get a little bit more information so we can figure out when this is. Starting in verse 17, it says, So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Okay, was that Daniel's time? No. Daniel is long dead, long past. So we know it refers to the time of the end. Verse 18, Now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright. Verse 19, and he said, look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time, reinforcing the point that it says it's the time of the end of the indignation, for at the appointed time, the end shall be. Now going to verse 26, 
and the vision of the evening and mornings, which is told, which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision. It refers to many days in the future. Okay, many days in the future, the time of the end. This was written about 550 BC. And it says in 2300 days, it's judgment time. 2300 days. Well, that doesn't seem right because God told Daniel through the angel that it's far off into the future. It's for the time of the end. Otherwise, we're only looking at a period of about six and a half years. And that just doesn't quite to seem to add up, does it? Do you remember our day for a year principle that we covered a couple of nights ago? If we apply that same principle again, we can make a lot more sense out of this prophecy. 2,300 days would then mean 2,300 years. Now that would put us much further in the future, wouldn't it, from Daniel's time? That makes a lot more sense. So just briefly, we touched on this the other night, but I threw that in just in case, just to jog your memory. But this is also important because it provides the starting point. These two prophecies share the starting point. Okay, the same, they start at the same time. So just briefly, the other night, we had a prophecy, the 490-year prophecy. It started in 457 B.C., We've seen that in the middle of the week, the Messiah was cut off, but not for himself, right? He came right on time in 27 AD, AD 31, Jesus died, AD 34, the gospel went to the Gentiles. We covered all that. So the first part of the prophecy was designed to get God's people ready for Jesus to come, but they largely missed it. The last half of the prophecy, well, this could get people confused again as well. And it could be that people will reject Christ, but embrace Antichrist. But we don't want to get confused. We're here tonight for clarity. We have a high priest in heaven full of grace, mercy, love, and forgiveness. Now let's look at the prophecy again and we'll see the rest of the story. You start in 457 BC. You add 490 years, you get to 34 AD, right? There are 1,810 years left. This brings us down to the year 1844. That's when the judgment begins. So for the past more than 150 years, we have been living in heaven's time of final judgment. It's already begun. This is the time when the Messiah went into the heavenly sanctuary to prepare a people that would be ready for him when he comes back. He's cleansing the sanctuary. Now this prophecy doesn't tell us exactly when Jesus is coming back. It's not the point of the prophecy. But it is to tell us the time that we're living in, which is a solemn time, but it's also a time of joy. 
We can be ready for Jesus to come. And we know he's on his way. We can trust the Bible. We can see all the markers along the way. And now we know where we're at. And we say, wow, Jesus is ministering in our behalf right now. He's getting ready to come back to get us. He's investigating. He's looking. Is that one ready? Is that one ready? It's great news, actually. It's amazing news. What will the judgment do? Just to reinforce that point, it will reveal the decisions that you have made for or against God. The judgment reveals whether your sins have been blotted out, whether your sins have been covered by the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Jesus. Have you clung to your sins or have you turned to Jesus? There's nothing to fear. I know it says fear God. That's not exactly what it's talking about. It's not saying you should be afraid of God. We can face the judgment with gladness. We can face the judgment with confidence because of Jesus. We have a high priest there. You're a sinner, but he's a savior. Amen? And where sin abounded, grace did abound much more. Hebrews 7.25 says this, Therefore he, speaking of Jesus, is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He desires to make intercession for you. Jesus is standing in heaven right now. He is interceding for you. If you'll have him, he's the best lawyer that money can't buy. And even better news than that, he's never lost a case. And he's willing to represent you if you'll let him. Will you let Jesus represent you in the judgment as we wait for him to come? If that's your desire, won't you stand with me tonight as we pray? Heavenly Father, you see the ones standing. They are saying, Lord, we are ready for you. Lord, we place ourselves in your hands as you plead our cases, knowing that none of us are righteous, no, not one, but you are righteous. And you have spilled your blood to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You have the sins recorded in your book, but you're blotting them out if we come to you. We thank you, Jesus, that you are so faithful to us. We just ask that tonight that you would seal all these decisions that you see being made here in every heart and that we would go away with gladness and joy knowing that Jesus is coming soon and that he's doing everything possible to redeem us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.